0: I like to think that we're the kind of puppeteer behind the scenes, controlling the correspondent. Delirious, ecstatic
1: scenes here in Harare. Tens of thousands of people flooding onto the streets.
2: We're ecstatic. We can't even contain ourselves. We, I don't even, I even feel like jumping up and down. Oh my gosh! <laughs> this is the best of our lives. It's a new beginning, a dawn of a new era.
0: Start with maybe your wide shot and then you'll get a, a close-up. I try to do that same sort of thing with sound.
3: You're using your mic like a camera,
0: zooming in and zooming up close. Hello, I'm Becky Lipscomb and I'm a foreign news field producer for the BBC. I've been a radio journalist for 20 years. And today I'm going to give you a masterclass on the art of recording in the field and
3: welcome to the Masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim, and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Every week, we're going to have a Master of Audio Journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week, we're talking the art of recording in the field with Becky Lipscomb. She started off as a sound engineer and has worked as a foreign producer in Africa, China, and Indonesia, and is now based in Nairobi. So, I mean, Becky, first of all, what
0: does a foreign news field producer actually do? I like to think that we're the kind of puppeteer behind the scenes, controlling <laughs> the correspondent and often the cameraman as well. In the BBC, those of us that work in foreign news, certainly we're all tri media producers these days. So we all do telly as well as radio. So we will be involved in setting up the story with the correspondent. We have quite a bit of editorial say. We do a lot of the liaising with the editors and the commissioners in London. And then when it comes to it, we will be the people that go out into the field. And in my case, because I specialise in radio, I do pretty much all the recording and the editing of the radio pieces as well. We normally work in a team of three, and depending on where we're working, we'll perhaps be with a local fixer, translator as well. And so the, the producer also has the job of kind of travel agent, road manager, just sort of odd job person, really an accountant, budget keeper.
3: Before you're heading out into the field, how do you pack your bag? What are the things that you have to put in?
0: Okay, I have a kit bag which I sort of leave packed, which I've actually got here. So I'm just going to tell you what's in it. This is my... It's like a little bum bag, really. Uh, It's got my recording device in it, which is quite a nice one now, which in my case is a Tascam DR100, which... Is not what the BBC normally uses, uh, but I wanted it because it was a little bit more fancy and has a few more inputs. So I've got that. I've got my mic cable. I've got a couple of microphones. I I used to just always use one very basic microphone that had nothing that could go wrong with it. And I still do carry that one. It's just the traditional sort of stick mic that you perhaps would see reporters running around with. It's solid. It doesn't need a battery. It's omnidirectional, so it records in all directions. And it has never, ever let me down.
3: And those are fantastic for fighting your way out of a crowd as well. They are like little batons, yeah. So when I worked at the BBC, that was the only mic that I was ever given. I mean, do people need more than one mic? Because no one ever complained about my sound.
0: No, I think I could probably still get by with that mic. But actually, I find it now a lot more rewarding if I have options. Um, I've been, you know doing this a stupidly long time. (laughs) I need to keep myself interested. Those mics are great and I do carry it because it doesn't ever distort. So if you're in a helicopter or somewhere really, really noisy, then it just never lets you down. But it's not brilliant for everything. So I also carry like a gun mic that you might see TV reporters using sometimes. They have those big fluffy casings on them. That one is very directional.
3: A shotgun mic, yeah.
0: That's very, very directional. So I like to have that in my Armour as well. And then I've just got a whole load of spare batteries. I've got some spare cables. I've got um, a mini jack to mini jack cable as well in case I ever need to get sound off somebody else that needs that. I've got some headphones. How many SD cards would you take with you? Do you know what? I've only got two. I've got one in the machine and a spare one. And I very rarely need to swap them over. I really only have two in case I'm in a sort of environment, as you will know from China, where you need to hide what you've been recording just in case the authorities or other nasty people want to come away, come along and take your SD card away.
3: One of the things that you're doing as a radio field producer is trying to kind of paint these auditory pictures of of a place to capture it in sound. When you go out on a story, how do you do that? Do you go out looking for particular things or are you just kind of always listening to what's happening?
0: Very occasionally we'll go out looking for something, but normally it will be that the story takes us to a certain place and then when we get there, quite often we don't really know what we're going to hear or see So we'll normally just turn up somewhere. And I mean, some people say, oh, when you get somewhere, you just need to shut your eyes and listen to the sounds around you. I think that's nice in practice, but a little impractical (laughs) because you'll probably get mugged or uh, fall over something. But I, I do look around. I know that sounds intuitive, but just to see what's around and what might be sources of sound. But then I tend to wander around with my headphones on and my machine in record or record pause and see what comes up. You never know, there might be some kind of electrical interference that's messing with that mic, and you just get this horrible buzz. And that's another reason why that old-fashioned stick mic is really good, because you don't get that electrical interference. And I'm using the words, I realise, um, see quite a lot, which is, is, does seem counterintuitive, but I do tend to think of it in terms of trying to set a scene for the listener. I don't know if you guys do TV as well, but you, you know, you need a variety of shots, and you'll start with maybe your wide shot, and then you'll get a, a close up, or you'll get some interesting other bits and pieces of shots. But I try to do that same sort of thing with sound as well. I'll get some kind of establishing sound when I arrive somewhere. Say I turn up in an Ethiopian village. I'll get some just general atmos and I'll get a few minutes of that and then there'll be more interesting little sounds and so I'll go closer up to the women doing their cooking or their washing or the, or the chickens or the kids playing or what have you so that you can build a mix of that sort of stuff. And I'll try to get a really, as much as, as, much as possible basically because you never know what the correspondent is going to want to, what sounds you might want to talk around or talk to Um, so I try to just get anything that's there, basically.
3: You're using your mic like a camera, zooming in and zooming up close.
0: Yes, exactly.
3: I mean, let's listen to an example. We have some sound of a piece that you did with the Africa correspondent, Andrew Harding, when Zimbabwe's longstanding president, Robert Mugabe, was forced from power. And maybe we could listen to the start of that piece because it's in this sort of amazing, sound witch environment and maybe you could talk through how that came about.
1: Delirious, ecstatic scenes here in Harare. Tens of thousands of people flooding onto the streets all around me, marching through the city centre. They're carrying banners saying, Mugabe must go. The fear that has dominated people's lives for so long, just seems to have lifted.
2: It's Freedom Day. They should declare it a national holiday. We're ecstatic. We can't even contain ourselves. We, I don't even, I even feel like jumping up and down. Oh my gosh, this is the best of our lives. It's a new beginning, a dawn of a new era.
1: It's a crowd dancing here, more sitting on top of their cars, driving past,
2: waving the Zimbabwean flag. 37 years of abuse, 37 years of being robbed of our wealth. Some of us standing here don't know any other president besides Robert Mugabe. I don't think anybody ever thought we'd see this day, whilst he's still alive, that he'd be moved out of power. He hasn't been moved out yet. There's no turning back now. This is the end for him. He's out. It's over.
3: That's just an amazingly sound-rich environment. You can just hear that excitement. But as a producer, is it hard that there are so many different sources of sound all at once?
0: In a way, that's almost the easiest sort of story to do because it's all just happening around you and you don't have to set up anything. You just wander onto the streets and talk to people and it's a very rewarding piece of work to do. It's quite tricky when you're in such a noisy environment to get the voices clearly. And on that occasion, I only had uh, my stick mic. It just meant I had to get it really close to people. I mean, sort of, you know, inches away to make their voices heard and and also for Andrew, the reporter, to make his voice heard because all of his stuff was done out on location as well. In terms of the other sounds, I mean, some of that was probably there at the time. Other bits of that sound would have been mixed in. And then it's just, at that time, it was probably most difficult because we were out for quite a few hours with the crowd and so we've got loads and loads of sound and then you have to figure out which bits of it you're going to use
3: I mean when you are in an environment like that where you've got tons of sound there's all this stuff happening do you have a system do you write notes or do you mark tracks or how do you know where to find things later on because you're also working under
0: quite tight time constraints aren't you Being very old-fashioned, I used to carry a piece of paper and a pen in my little kit, which which I still do. And if there was anything in particular, I would try to remember to write down the track number or maybe I'd put it in my phone or something. But actually, to be honest, when I get back to my computer, I just take everything off the card, dump it onto the computer, and I load it all into the program that we use. I just very quickly label everything. And S, I'm just going to junk it. And my labelling system is a little bit anal, shall we say. So anything that sound effects, I start the file name with SFX. So it groups them all together. So the bits of vox pops, they're all called voxes. When I open them up in the editing system, they're all grouped. So if I know if I'm looking for a bit of sound effects, I just go to the bits beginning with S, SFX. And so I find that quite a quick system.
3: That would have saved me so much time.
1: Let's play the next clip. Extraordinary scenes here in the center of Harare. Hundreds, thousands of people streaming through the streets, everyone with a huge smile on their faces. Banners saying Mugabe must go. Very happy, ecstatic. It's about time this happened, man.
0: We're ecstatic, hey. It was awful.
1: Is this the end of, President, the Mugabe? Oui. Yes, that's the end of President Mugabe? We don't want him. For now, Mr Mugabe remains under house arrest, apparently refusing to step down. But his party, ZANU-PF, is moving fast to strip him and his wife Grace of their official roles. And it's hard to see how the 93-year-old can remain president for much longer. This is an extraordinary moment in Zimbabwe's history. The fear that kept so many people in check appears to have lifted overnight. But the country still faces huge economic challenges and ZANU-PF is unlikely to relinquish its iron grip on power.
3: That's just an amazing amount of sound in a piece. Can you you have too much sound in a piece, do you think? Or is that something that you aim for, that there's a
0: kind of sound bed underneath the whole thing? Um, To be honest, I do try to generally do that. If I'm out on location, I take it as a personal failure if I haven't got enough sound to go underneath everything. But... Not every piece does needs that, and obviously not every piece is going to be as noisy as that one. And there would have been pieces that we did in Zimbabwe um, that would have been slightly more reflective and didn't have as much sound underneath, but that was an on-the-day trying to give the listener a sense of what it was like to be on the streets that day, which was absolutely amazing. We do do packages that are more analytical and reflective, but you still have to make them interesting, and I think quite difficult sometimes when you're not... Recording things in a nice environment all the time. It's fine if you're recording in a studio, it's all going to sound nice and even. But when you've got bits that are a bit in a studio, a bit on the street, a bit in somebody else's office that might be a bit noisy, it can sound a little bit clunky if you don't have bits of sound or bits of bridging material to kind of smooth out some of those joins sometimes. If you're in a room or an office or something, don't just go and interview the person and then come away with the interview. Just get some background noise. Just stand there for a minute with your microphone looking a little bit of an idiot. But you can pretend to be looking at your phone or something whilst your microphone is recording. And just it just helps smooth the joints.
3: So we have another example of uh, something that you've recently done, which is an interview that Andrew Harding did with a woman who had been attacked. I think, is it a white farmer in Mm. Zimbabwe? That's right, yeah. It's a really interesting interview. I mean, it's completely different from the last one, in, but I think what's interesting is the sort of movement in the interview—the fact that she's moving from one place to another as she speaks.
0: I mean, mm. t- tell us about
3: that. Why? Why you think that worked?
0: Um, I really like this because, I mean, a she's a great speaker, but and B, what you what you'll hear is absolutely unedited—the raw interview. We haven't done anything with it yet. It's going to p- be part of a, a series that we do later in the year. Um But she was telling us about her attack and rather than just sit her down and have her go through it, she took us to her front gate and explained what had happened there as she was trying to drive out with the car she was attacked somebody grabbed her. she was armed but she couldn't get her gun in time. this person kicked her, damaged her leg and this is all happens before you you'll hear. and then um, she basically took us through how the people dragged her inside, dragged her up the stairs and um, up to a, a room upstairs where the safe was kept and having her describe it like that just felt so much more she just gave you such a great impression of what it was like and it was a, a rural location so it sounded very nice and outside and then she takes you through the door through the the front room up to the stairs and then up the stairs and then into the room and the, the sound is changing all the time so you really feel like you're there
2: they had been watching me, they had said, for the past week. I had a conversation with one of them as the assault was going on. Anyway, I said, look, I, I, can't, I can't walk. You've broken my knee. You." So they dragged me. They dragged me to here. And they knew, this was an inside job. They knew exactly my entry and exit points They opened up here They had the keys they opened Anyhow they dragged me through and I can then show you here They then dragged me up through up up the passage and they dragged me here and they stopped right here. And they said, open here, we want the safe.
1: These are the stairs going up and there's a a big solid gate blocking off the bottom of the stairs. Yes,
2: and I always lock that when I go out. Anyhow, um, they knew exactly where to take me. They brought me right here. And I had to give them the key, which I thought, look, because they had the knife trained on me and the other one had the gun, my firearm. So I gave them the key. I thought, look, they know where it is. Let's um, Let's not beat about the bush.
3: And I mean, in general terms, when you go out to interview someone, how do you decide whether to interview them inside or
0: outside? Most of the time, to be honest, it comes down to practicalities. And especially as we work uh, so much of the time, this the the various examples you've played um, actually were just uh, me and Andrew, so just doing for radio, which was great. That's such a, a luxury these days. But quite often you, you'll be working with a cameraman as well. So he generally gets the say on what's going to look best. And if it sounds dreadful, then I will insist that we do it somewhere else. But that's one factor. Another is if we're wanting them to to move like that and talk us through a story. So what we did, for example, with that, she explained that whole thing whilst we are on the move and then we sat and did a longer interview with her inside where it's quieter. Sometimes you'll want to be sitting somewhere nice and quiet, especially if it's quite a kind of sensitive or emotional story that somebody's telling you and you'll want to get the mic quite nice and close So you get that richer, more immersive, intense sound. And sometimes if you're somewhere where stuff is happening or there's just a nice natural sound, you'll want to do it outside. So if I'm in that Ethiopian village, I'm probably going to want to do the the interview outside. So I've got nice sounds of village going on around. So, you know, it depends where you are and what you're trying to do with that particular bit of interview.
3: That whole thing about mic placement—how close it is to the interviewee's mouth—it has an impact on how we as listeners feel, doesn't it? Because it, if the mic is further, we feel a bit more distance from them. And you, do you sometimes feel like that's a little bit emotionally
0: manipulative? I, I think it's our job to be a little bit emotionally <laughs> manipulative, isn't it? Pretty sure that's in my job description. <laughs> um, no, a little bit, a little bit. To be honest. I sometimes feel if we're doing that sort of interview with somebody that they don't really mind the mic being there. If it's just the mic, people tend to forget about it quite quickly, much more so than if there's a TV camera there as well. And if it helps you to get into this, you know, get the real sense and really engage with what the person's saying, I don't have a problem with that.
3: So when it comes to distance, you suggested another example, which I thought was particularly interesting, was uh, covering Ebola, where you have this enforced distance. You just can't go too close to your
1: interviewees.
0: Over there is two, and another side is one.
1: Who have Ebola? Yes. So I presume we can't go too close for our safety? No, we don't go safety. too close.
0: Because we don't go
1: We've close. come to Kigbal village, about three and a half hours drive out of Freetown. It's a cluster of huts by the side of the road. And it seems to be the epicenter of a very serious Ebola outbreak. And then this has you got people who are yeah, sick. That's why I don't allow you to go there, because it's not well, safe. No, we, we understand. I'm walking along the road now, and I'm being shown two women lying under a tree. Both, we're told, have the Ebola virus. And next door, there's another woman. She too is suffering, and our husband's trying to look after her. W- what is your name, sir? Yes, I'm And and this is your wife behind you, and she's sick. We're just standing about four yards away from him for our own safety. Sir, could could you ask your wife, what do you think will happen
0: to you? The husband is asking the wife that if they don't heal you, what will happen to you? And the lady said she's going to die.
3: So that must have been incredibly difficult on all kinds of levels. What was it like being there?
0: Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't the easiest. To be honest, once we were there and working, your brain goes into that kind of, right, how do we tell this story? This is difficult, but, you know, we need to tell this story as well as we can because it's such an important story. And this was a village that had no help at all, and people were literally dying. There was a road, main road going through this village with huts on either side. And there were the people that were suspected to have Ebola and were dying were on one side of the road. And on the other side of the road were the people that they thought didn't have Ebola and couldn't go near the people that did have Ebola. So it was a very odd sensation. We were the sort of only people that were walking down the middle of this road and going to the side of the road and trying to speak to the people that were suffering from Ebola on one side and then speaking to the other people on the other side of the road. When we were working, there was a team of three of us, a cameraman, correspondent and me, plus a local BBC guy from Sierra Leone who's absolutely amazing and also a kind of safety advisor with us as well who basically... His job was to watch us at all times and make sure we didn't touch anybody or anything and then to spray us with uh, some high level disinfectant and that kind of stuff. So it's very strange. So we had to kind of think how we were going to be able to tell these people's stories when we really couldn't get them on mic. As you could tell, it was, it was a quite a way away. And I didn't have a shotgun mic at that stage, which would have been helpful.
3: Towards the end of this piece, there was this very just sort of stunning and chilling moment, and I'd like to play that.
1: Then we cross the road. There's a large cluster of children standing together. Two or three of them look feverish. It seems they've all chosen this side of the road as a means of protecting themselves from the virus. Could you do me a favor? Could you ask the children to raise their hands if they've been orphaned? Well, in the crowd of children, some very small in front of me, every one of them has put their hands up. There must be 25, 30 children. One of them is Ibrahim Kamar. He's 11 years old. He's looking, frankly, a little feverish, but he and the chief insist he's okay. He says his mother has died. And his father, Hamidu is in the nearby hospital and he doesn't know what's happened to him. I'm sorry. And do you know you must not touch people with Ebola? Do you know the rules? What little help there has been here has been focused on the dead removing the bodies rather than on the living. There's no quarantine system in place. But we do hear of a few children who've been moved down the road so this is, um, this is Zainab, the mother. Zainab, Zainab and, and Alusain. And they've been brought here because they're showing some symptoms of fever and they're obviously concerned in the village that they might have Ebola. There's no space in the local hospital. In fact, there is no treatment center in this district at all. So they've come here where they're just being kept slightly away from the rest of the village. How are you? Are you OK?
0: Alusain, his, head
1: aching. His head's aching. I'm sorry. The mother and child have just walked back, the boy looking very unsteady as they headed back to their little building where the other seven children are, and of course, the possibly infected boy sitting down next to the other children.
3: So that was just a devastating section, and I think part of the power of it was that part when Andrew asked the children to raise their hands and it just painted this sort of immediate picture in my mind. I could see it and I could hear it. I thought it was just such a clever way of describing what was
0: happening. Oh good, thank you because we did wonder whether that was a little bit too cheesy and obviously (laughs) it's the sort of thing that works well for TV. It was so striking, they all put their hands up so we left it in and he recorded those bits at the time so it, it all kind of flowed quite nicely.
3: Do you just leave the mic on all the time or are you quite sort of economical with how much you tape?
0: I don't leave it on all the time. I have it ready to go all the time um, so that I'm not fumbling to get it out of my bag or anything. It's, It's there in my hands or around my neck. Somewhere like that day, I probably recorded quite a lot because I was recording a lot of the conversations and all those sorts of things that you, you don't know whether they're going to go anywhere and you never know when you're going to want to interject a, a few of those kind of non-formal interviews or chats into the package. In other situations, like if I'm somewhere where anything could happen at any time, like a kind of conflict situation or there are riots, then I probably would keep it on more because you just never know if something's somebody's going to go bang, basically, which has happened. Um, and then you've got it on tape, which is useful.
3: Before you go, do you have two top tips about how to record sound in the
0: field? Think about what you're trying to, to achieve and how you can best get that across to your listener. and try to really pinpoint the sounds that will take them to that specific place and you know to use the market example something specific about that market whether it's somebody shouting something in French or Somali or whatever it might be rather than just something generic would be one and uh, always record more wild track than you think you're ever going to need because it will save you
3: (laughs) that's such a good tip And finally, do you have a task for our listeners?
0: I do. You can tell me whether I, this is too cruel, okay? But my <laughs> task is to record a very simple little story, like a sequence really, but with no narration, no voiceover, no script or anything like that. So just with sounds. And from what you record, nothing major needs to happen in this sort of in terms of drama but from what you record the listener should be able to work out exactly what's going on where you are what's happening where you're going to or where you've arrived and just they should be able to have a picture in their heads of what's going on around you and what the kind of sequence of events is and it should be less than one minute long and it should include at least six different sounds Oh, perfect. Does that Thank- make
3: sense? Yes, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Becky.
0: <laughs> Pleasure.
3: The Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbour. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening.